Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT10 for 10% off. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes. Today we will be discussing red-green in Adventures in the Forgotten Realms. So first, as always, I want to remind everyone that uh, my notes are available on patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes to limited guru and above level patrons. So if you want to follow along with those notes uh, as I go, a uh, reminder to pull those up now. So jumping right into things. I think, you know, obviously red-green is about this like aggressive pack tactics thing. You know, you're generally taking advantage of like aggressive red creatures and high quality green creatures as you would in basically any red-green deck in any format. As far as how this, uh, how red-green is positioned in Forgotten Realms compared to how red-green is positioned generally in other formats, red-green historically often cares about big creatures in a way that the pack tactics mechanic almost but not quite implies in this format because pack tactics looks at the total of all of your creatures and it's only looking for six total power that can be multiple small creatures as opposed to a single big creature and so there's less pressure on draft a single big creature than there would be in a mechanic that's specifically looking at the size of an individual creature that leaves room for prioritizing smaller creatures relative to bigger creatures and I think that that room is actualized, which is to say that I think that the red-green decks in this format are appreciably more about small creatures than they are about big creatures. So to dive into that a little bit deeper, well, first, I mean, an interesting note of contrast for me has been comparing red-green to black-green in this format. And those two are specifically interesting to me to compare because I think that red and black are the two best colors. And because you so often want to try to be red-black, you often start taking red and or black cards. And then when you're not drafting that, it's often because it's not available. So if you're moving into red-green, it's often be, or if you're moving into green, it's often, well, I started with red cards or I started with black cards. And then I have one of those plus green cards. So that means I just have the experience of like, what's it like when I move into green from red? And what's it like when I move into green from black? And those experiences feel very different to me. And the reason is that the early black creatures play a much better defensive game. Shambling Ghast in particular is difficult to attack into. Vampire Spawn is also like difficult to attack into and like gains life when you play it. And that combination, plus like Spulker Ghoul potentially making it hard for your opponent to attack. And, you know, when you contrast those cards on defense to cards like Hobgoblin Captain and Valor Singer, the black cards are a lot better at kind of like playing both ways and specifically good at playing a defensive role. And so those black cards have allowed me to play a game where I'm playing just like early defensive creatures like those things and then like the Basilisk in green. And then using that to buy time to play like owlbears and hill giant herdgorgers and stuff. And I felt pretty comfortable with this like green, black, more controlling role. Whereas when I'm red and I pivot into green, I am much less excited about my like owlbears and hill giant herdgorgers because I don't think that the red cards 
allow me to like pivot into a late game smoothly. And what ends up happening is the early red creatures kind of want to race. So I have like less life when I'm playing these things. And that creates a specific vulnerability point against uh, price of loyalty in particular, where if my deck is built around all these big creatures, I'm going to like die to price of loyalty. Whereas if I'm green black and I have big creatures, I might have my own ghouls and deadly disputes that I could potentially sacrifice my creatures in response if my opponent targets them with price of loyalty, or I'm just at a higher life total such that I don't like lose the game to a single price of loyalty, even like if they don't have a sack outlet. And it's less bad for me if they do have a sack outlet or like more a situation that I can recover from because I have like strong late game in general. Whereas when I've tried to play the higher curve red green deck, the early game doesn't lend itself to a late game where these just like clunky ground creatures can take over in a meaningful way. Um, I'm more likely to just like get outraced by flyers or lose price of loyalty or lose to like green white scaling creatures or whatever. And it's felt really bad. Also, it helps there that like black removal can answer the scaling creatures in a way that red removal uh, struggles with. Green black can play control. Red green can't play control. Therefore, expensive green creatures are better in green black than they are in green red. Therefore, you don't want them in green red. Therefore, you need to prioritize the early creatures in green red more than you would in green black. What all of that means is, you know, you want to try to have a low curve. You want to try to be aggressive in your red green decks. So with that in mind, it is also noteworthy that if you look at the individual card stats for uh, how successful cards are in red green, what you may notice is that uh, there are very few commons that have a higher game in hand win rate than red green's win rate as a whole. So like most commons underperform in the archetype, um, which is to say, I think that most successful versions of the deck and most of the versions of the deck that people play have a really high concentration of a few good commons. And my takeaway from that is that the archetype is very shallow. There are a few cards that support it really, really well. And if you don't have like your premium cards, especially like Hobgoblin Captain and Null Hunter, the like tier down from that is much worse. Unless you have like the premium uncommons that uh, exist in that slot, like Battlecry Goblin and Targnar and Inspired or Intrepid Outlander. But if you have to play like the lower quality two drops, or if you have a worse curve or something like that, your deck can really fall apart. And my experience has been, in a way that matches the stats, that this is a very, very difficult deck to force because there are so few cards that you actually want and that work in, uh, well in any given role in the deck, which means that it's like red-green is the second best performing archetype in the format after red-black, but it is like the fourth most played archetype. More people play uh, green-white and red-white, and I think that Partially that's because there are just more acceptable cards to play in those decks. Whereas like red-green is drawing from a fairly narrow pool. Fortunately, a lot of the cards that are most important to red-green are not as important to other decks. In particular, like Null Hunter is not a key card to the other green decks the way that it is for red-green. So if red-green's open, then you can get the important cards for red-green and you can have a good deck but it doesn't support like multiple players at a table very well. 
you really don't want to be fighting for red-green, which means you really don't want to be forcing red-green. So it's a deck that I think you need to be like careful about making sure that you're only drafting it when it's there and not just like, you know, a red-green stand. So given that there is like a fairly small pool of cards that you want, let's go over that briefly. So basically there are around 10 commons, a little more than that, that have like a, a priest that are like a cut above the rest of the commons. There's like a substantial drop off in like the win rate with the commons that are a tier below this like top tier of commons. So the best common in red green by a lot is uh, Dragon's Fire. It's like roughly 2% better than Hobgoblin Captain, which is the next best, which is like roughly half a percent better than Valor Singer, which is then getting closer to some of the other stuff. So Dragon's Fire, way better than everything else. You basically just always take it over any other common at any point in the draft uh, up to there's no limit. Just if there's a dragon fire and like no uncommons or rares and you're drafting red green, you should take the dragon's fire basically no matter where you're at. After that, hobgoblin captain. And similarly, I think like this is one where you basically just like don't pass a hobgoblin captain unless there's an uncommon rare or dragon's fire. Like you always want it over every other common. There's not like a, oh, I have too many or I have enough of these. I want something else. You just take the Hobgoblin Captain. Followed by Valor Singer and then Null Hunter. And those have very similar win rates. That's a spot where like, so once we get below Hobgoblin, like after those top two, we get into the commons where it's like, yeah, these are close. You can like go one way or another way, depending on like, you know, maximizing your curve and like what your deck's short on and stuff like that. So like if you have a lot of two drops and not a lot of three drops, then you might take Valor Singer over Null Hunter. Whereas like if you're at all short on two drops, you should take Null Hunter over Valor Singer, even though Valor Singer has a higher win rate. So like those two are comparable. And then Inspiring Bard is like a little bit worse than those, but not very much worse. Inspiring Bard, the reason it's so good is that it's very common that on turn two, you're going to play a Pack Tactics card, like a Hobgoblin Captain or a Null Hunter or Targnar or Intrepid Outlander or Battlecry Goblin. Just every, every two drop you want has Pack Tactics. And then very often your like two drop plus your three drop just short of six power such that when you attack on turn four, you're not triggering pack tactics. But if you play Inspiring Bard, you are triggering pack tactics. And so Inspiring Bard ends up being like the premium four drop for this deck, even though it's not that great in other green decks. So like Inspiring Bard is like the common four drop that you're most looking for. Followed by Improvised Weaponry, followed by the next three cards all have the exact same win rate, Owlbear, Swarming Goblin, and Bull's Strength. And so Owlbear and Swarming Goblin should be viewed relatively interchangeably. I think that, you know, I'm inclined to think Owlbear is generally a little bit better, but they're very close. And then Bull's Strength does something totally different. Uh, It's desirable. I think I would generally recommend taking Bull's Strength ahead of Owlbear and Swarming Goblin, just because what I was saying about how you want the uh, curve to be very low. And because both Owlbear and Swarming Goblins are very good, and then there's also like Ferret's Fireball and Eltigard Ranger, and like Hill Giant Herdgorger is like also an expensive card. And all of those are like playable. And like basically, I think that it's very hard to have a deck where at the end of the draft, you're thinking, man, I really wish I had another five drop. Whereas I really want another pump spell so that I can afford to attack with my two drops is a pretty likely situation to occur. So given that they're all pretty similar win rate, I would generally prioritize bull strength, which, you know, 
it might be like it might require a deviation from how you've been drafting green to take a bull strength over an owlbear. Like owlbear reads is a much stronger card than bull strength, and I think is better in general. I would only take bull strength over owlbear in red green. Therefore, I would only take bull strength over owlbear when I'm drafting red green if I like know that I am drafting red green at that time. So there might be a lot of decks where I end up red green, but I have taken an owlbear over a bull strength because it was really enough in the draft that I didn't know. After those, plundering barbarian unspoils the hunt, and then everything else. There's like a substantial drop after that. So like those, those are the cards that you want to build your deck around. Dragon's Fire, Hobby Oven, Captain, Valor, Singer, Null Hunter, Inspiring Guard, Improvised Weaponry, Owlbear, Swarming Goblin, Full Strength, Plundering Barbarian, and Spoils the Hunt. If you can not play any other commons, that would be great. So then there's like a drop, and then there are five more commons that exist at a similar kind of power level. Uh, they're all sort of like interchangeable, and these are the cards that you're like rounding out your deck with. And that's Ferritus Fireball if you're like short on removal or don't have a lot of fives. Eltigard Ranger, if you don't have other fives, it's totally serviceable. Circle the Moon Druid, um, if you're light on threes. And then it's particularly good if you have exactly Null Hunter, because uh, the curve of Null Hunter into uh, Circle the Moon Druid is like the uh, way a common that you can just two-card combo get your Null Hunter to get a counter on when it attacks on turn four. Hill Giant, Herd Gorger, and Hoarding Ogre. And then everything beyond that, every common I haven't mentioned, is in the like filler I, I should try to avoid it but i might need to round out my deck with it you know there there are cards in that like you know that i haven't mentioned that are okay to play but you would prefer to avoid all of them so notably the only commons that cost two that are anywhere on that list are hobgoblin captain and null hunter and i think that two drops are extremely important to this archetype i think that you really need to like curve out so that you're threatening to enable pack tactics as soon as possible. And the whole situation is exacerbated by the fact that the one drops are really, really bad. Like they just don't play well. They're, like they only have one power. So they don't usually, like you're down a card essentially in terms of like getting two pack tactics. And they're just like too low impact to be worth a card. Whereas, and which is a significant disadvantage because I think definitely white and black and arguably blue all have one drops that you can put in your deck. So it's a format where a lot of your opponents are sometimes playing one drops and you're not, but you're trying to be aggressive, which can put you in a difficult bind, which means, you know, if your opponent's sometimes like curving out one drop, two drop, and you're trying to be aggressive, you have to have a two drop or you're just so far behind. Partially, you're saved by the fact that, well, you have three really premium uncommon two drops you can get in Battlecry Goblin, Targnar, and Intrepid Outlander. So it's not that hard to have enough playable two drops in red green, but you do really want to work for it so you don't have to play like the Basilisk and Armory Veteran and Innkeeper and stuff like that just to have enough twos. You really want the like good Battlecry two drops and you really want just as many of them as you can get. I think that's really like the absolute top priority in red green. Like if you don't take anything else away from this podcast, if you're drafting red green, only take you know, Dragon's Fire or other like premium removal over like Pack Tactics 2 drops. Like take Pack Tactics 2 drops over just like every more expensive creature unless it's like a rare bomb basically. Yeah, but as far as like identifying where is there a shortage and where is there like an abundance of a card available at the right power level relative to what you're looking for, there's an abundance at five, a shortage at two. Therefore, 
uh, put extra weight on every two that you see, and you know you can afford to let a couple of fives slip through the cracks and plan to get more fives later, and it will be okay. Well, one one interesting note: Ranger class is the like crazy, crazy bomb in red green. Like Ranger class is way, way, way better than all of the other cards in the format in the deck. Like it's three point six higher than the second highest win rate card, which amusingly is Drist, which is a card that you would be splashing in this deck. And it's not even a deck that splashes well, but Drist is so good that it wins more than any other red-green card in red-green. Ranger class is just like head and shoulders ahead of everything else, which makes sense since, you know, you really want good two drops and it's just way, way better than all the others. And it obviously plays exactly what you're trying to do in every way. So as far as like, you know, cards that should you should be happy going into this archetype if you have, Ranger class is definitely up there. Honestly, yeah, like this this archetype is I think super straightforward because there are so few roles, or so few cards that are the right card for their role. There's not a lot of flexibility. Like because I think you have to play aggressive, the deck like doesn't have the tools to play a defensive game even though like, yes, there's strong top end, but as I talked about at the beginning, you're just in such a bad position at that point in the game that you're going to, like, lose to most people if you try to build your deck around that top end. So you have to try to be on the front foot. There are only a few ways to try to do that. You have to play those. You have to play the cheap removal and the cheap... And, the, like, bull strength is the only pump spell that's, like, at a good rate on plan for the deck. So, like, if you want a pump spell, it's bull strength. If you want, like good cheap removal it's dragon's fire if you can't get that you have access to spoils the hunt improvised weaponry and ferret fireball and then at uncommon you get hunter's mark and magic missile both of which you're very happy to have and then also burning hands and then basically just like how much should i prioritize a creature well the less it costs the more i should prioritize it as long as it's like one of the creatures that's good obviously none of the one drops and i do think that you know like certainly until you're like in pack three and short on two drops you should avoid taking any of the like bad twos and just hope to find the pack tactics twos instead. So like I would take, you know, like Valor Singer or Inspiring Bard or something over like a, you know, second rate two drop. Yeah, I, I think it's not an archetype that has a lot of flexibility or like dimension to it. It's basically just like it does this one trick. The one trick is pretty strong. You need to get the right cards to let you do it. So you need to make sure that it's open and you can get those cards but that's what's up. Every now and then you might find like, I can't get all the right pieces, but I have some strong cards. So now I need to like try to find the right spot for like the lower tier red and green cards. And you might find like moments to make certain ones the shine. But at its core, this is, I think, just a very like one dimensional strategy. That's kind of just how it is. You know, in general, I like to try to find like alternate approaches and like find the depth and everything. But I, I really don't think that's here in this case. As a result, my lecture is pretty straightforward and pretty simple. But given that this was so uh, directing to the point, definitely I wouldn't be surprised if there's some stuff I didn't cover. So happy to answer any questions from chat. So Twitch chat, if you've asked anything or not asked anything, but have things that you're wondering about that you feel I haven't covered, uh, please ask them or re-ask them now. Um, while I'm waiting for questions to propagate, as always, I want to thank my uh, new patrons at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes for this week. So thank you very much to Xenopus Rex, Greg, Kyle, Sam, Andrew, Benjamin, Michael, Adam, and Mike. Also, 
That was a lot of people. Thank you, everyone. I don't know what I've done recently that was good to get all of your support, but I'm uh, really happy about it. Uh, whatever I did right recently, I hope I can keep doing. Um, anyway, questions. Um, I'm not really sure if there's a question here, but there's some discussion about uh, compelled duel and just like that it can be uh, powerful and like Yes. Compelled Duel does the inspiring bard thing where it turns on your pack tactics. And so like it can create a spot where, oh, instead of not being able to attack at all, I can attack with a whole bunch of things and get a whole bunch of triggers and eat one of your things. And like that's all very good. Obviously, the problem with it is, you know, it's a sorcery speed, very conditional card. Very, It's the kind of card that's, you know, high risk, high reward which is the kind of card that's not going to have a very high win rate because uh, it's going to have a pretty high failure rate. But like when it's good, it's going to be quite good. And I definitely think that, you know, like if you are high on pack tactics cards, which some versions of this deck will be and some versions won't be, and obviously it's going to matter like how big of an impact is pack tactics on my cards, right? Like some, some of the cards pay you more for it than others. I do think it's like a card that, you know, you can justify playing, but it's not a card that you need to like actively draft. And I think it's a card that's better avoided because of its like failure state and stuff like that. I would only want to play it if I have a really high creature count with a lot of pack tactics, etc. Next, uh, maybe question statement: Null Camp is playable in hard aggro. I've liked it at least the few times I've drafted such a deck. So I had a similar expectation. I played a couple of Null Camps in my first red green deck. And I expected them to be pretty good because, like, you know, they pump and give you pack tactics and it makes sense that, uh, like, you can't block me. I'm going to finish the game. effect would be good. My experience with it was uh, very underwhelming. I found the plus two tough, the plus one toughness didn't, wasn't enough to make combat go my way the way that I wanted it to a lot. And it ended up being very awkward for me in a deck where I expected it to be very good. So combining that with the fact that its win rate's like not very high, I've been inclined to mostly write off the card, even though it, it did read appealingly to me in the archetype to begin with, but it didn't live up to that expectation in my relatively limited experience. Next question. So is the summary do not go into red-green unless you have a bomb? No, that's actually very specifically not the summary. I do think that this is an archetype more so than, for example, green-white, that does have the tools to succeed at common. While the uncommon battle cry creatures in or the uncommon pack tactics creatures in particular are super premium, and there are some busted rares, I think the like common version of this deck, where you just have a bunch of like hobgoblin captains and null hunters and bull strengths, does work and do something strong. You just need to be sure that it's open and you're not competing with anyone else at the table for those cards because you want to be able to get them late because you need all of your picks to be able to come from this relatively small pool of playables that most other people don't want, but other people in your archetype will want. So the summary is much less you need a rare and much more you need to look at like late in the pack signals to see that this, like the coast is fully clear. So like it's safest to go into this archetype if you're in a spot where you're like tabling null hunters and bull strengths and like you have a reason to believe that no one's looking for the same cards as you which is a really really meaningfully different thing than i need a bomb it is similarly 
proceed with caution, only go into this in certain circumstances, but it's it's very much more about being open at the table than a single powerful card, which also should line up with kind of the thing that I talk about in general about how bombs are more important and more impactful in control decks, whereas this really wants to be focused on being an aggro deck, which means that what you're really looking for is can I have depth of good functional cards that all play to the same consistent plan rather than what are my best cards like. Next question, speaking of Drist performing well, but splashing being hard in red-green, would you recommend splashing when you have a single pip bomb? Well, given Drist's stats, I would certainly recommend doing everything you can to splash Drist, which mostly means if you have access to it, very, very, very highly prioritizing any improvised weaponries and plundering barbarians you can find. Given how effective that is, certainly anything similar to it that you can do, you should do. So for example, I would imagine that splashing Orcus is probably a very like wise choice. There aren't really that many like some single pip super bombs. I have, I believe, splashed Nadar in this kind of deck. Broadly speaking, like I would say, yes, you should attempt to splash single pip bombs, but you should be very careful about not doing it if you can't find treasure makers. And if you have access to a single pip bomb, you should really, really highly prioritize improvised weaponry and plundering barbarian, even potentially taking them over pack tactics two drops in some cases. Next question, would you be fine with an extremely low curve if you wouldn't get easy access to solid five drops. Yes, I see the solid five drops as it's totally fine if my curve goes up to these, but if my deck is just a bunch of like premium two drops and pump spells and removal and like I top out at inspiring bards or whatever, I think that that's a deck that I would expect to do very well with, which is why I see like Owlbear and Swarming Goblins as kind of like a it's fine to have this, but I don't want to prioritize it because while my deck won't function if I don't have two drops, it absolutely will function if I don't have five drops, and like I'm afraid of having too many five drops. This question, what cards are most likely to signal the, to me that red-green is open? I've seen Null Hunters late since it doesn't draft well elsewhere. Yeah, I think I think exactly Null Hunter is really the best signal because I think that anyone who is red-green specifically will want it pretty highly, and it can make it around the table if like there's another green drafter, but they're drafting some other green deck. So I, I think, and I, I touched on this briefly, I think the main things that you're looking at as signals are Null Hunters, Inspiring Bards maybe, Bull Strength, a little bit Valor Singer. Obviously, like Targnar is a good one to watch for, because like that can go very late. So, yeah, I mean, like, I would say those cards in particular, plus just, you know, general, uh, like, table reading skills, just in terms of, like, oh, it's, like, pretty clear that red is open because I got just, like, a late-ish good red card, and it's pretty clear that green's open because I got a late green card or whatever. And obviously sometimes you're going to, like, take some good pack tactics creatures early and, you know, have been in a spot where you basically commit before you know, and hope for the best, hope the cards are open in the right spot, hope you can chase the other person off a red-green or whatever. Next question, why do I think Frog Hemoth sits in mid-spot win rate? Um, it's like, why is Frog Hemoth not a bigger bomb, I assume is the question, and the answer, of course, is because you don't really want five drops that much, and it's easy to have too many of them, and it is really nice to have like a haste creature that can trigger pack tactics and stuff, but it's also... Because your deck is generally so aggressive, your opponent's often going to be playing control, 
So they're often going to be leaving their creatures back on defense, and it's often like not that hard for them to like trade off with your frog humans, and you don't get that much value out of it. So you know when you compare it to Owlbear, like they're both five mana four fours, and this one doesn't draw a card; it attacks right away instead. Might be worth a card or whatever, but it's not like way better. And Owlbear's you know kind of medium anyway, so I'm I'm not surprised that it's like not a giant bomb. Next question is about uh, red equipment, boots, and rapier, specifically as a way to enable pack tactics. So the issue there is those are like kind of a way to like cheat on pack tactics. Like they get you pack tactics faster, but in a way that's like a lot more fragile, right? Like pack tactics is like how much, like it, it kind of says how many total creatures do you have, and those aren't a creature. So often what's happening is just like, add up the total power of all your cards and boots contributes less total power than a creature would. There are no one power creatures that you want to play in this deck. So your boots, like in a spot, once you're like trading and, you know, basically like after turn three, the fact that you put boots in your deck just makes it harder for you to get to like critical mass where you have like enough power to trigger your thing, like going longer into the game. It gives you like nut draws where you go like, Turn one boots, turn two guy, turn three guy equip, and like one of my guys was a hobgoblin captain and the other was an all hunter, and now I have six power. And so, like, now I did it. But the fact that the boots by itself is taking a card and only contributing one power means that, like, if your opponent has a removal spell, you're way less likely to be able to make your tactics keep happening. And then, as far as rapier, adding two power, which is, you know, what you would expect is a minimum from any other creature. And because you need it when you're attacking, you have to play it before declaring your attacker. So you don't get to use it as a trick, which is like where its primary value comes from. So you're basically trying to turn it into a two-power haste creature, essentially, by like playing it before combat and attacking to trigger pack tactics. But it's like a two-power haste creature that has a problem with, well, my opponent blocked the creature that I put the rapier on, and now I've like lost that creature and my rapier is unequipped and now it needs a ton of mana to re-equip. And like that ton of mana is a really big cost. It kind of plays like you're down an extra card. And then obviously if you're in a spot where it's just like, oh, I need to draw a creature or whatever. Well, it's not. And like it, the more equipment you have in your deck, the more likely it is that your draw just doesn't work. Especially if you have like spoils the hunt and bull strength and you have all the like multiple different kinds of cards that need creatures. So it creates kind of like more points of failure while not adding more power to your pack tactics than a creature would. So it like basically gives you a little bit of explosiveness in the cost of a little bit of consistency and resilience. And uh, the stats suggest that that trade is not beneficial. Next question. Does a combination of Troubadour and Owlbear and Hill Giant is that another way to approach red green or should we avoid it if possible? So I'm assuming that what you're going for is like, does the fact that Troubadour benefits over time allow you to play this more controlling game. And the issue is where I think red-green is really lacking isn't like a four drop that lets you play a longer game. It's one, two, and three drops that play a defensive game such that you can afford to have a Troubadour going for a while. It's like, okay, well, if your plan is like Troubadour and Owlbear, sure, maybe you've accomplished like, I'm doing good stuff late, but why aren't you dead? And you don't have a good enough answer to why you're not dead in this format where people are pretty into killing you. Yeah, I, I I don't think like Troubadour really changes the equation. Uh, Troubadour is like on the list of 
reasonably solid cards. So like it's fine to put it. It's in kind of like the mid tier. It's fine to play it. Nothing special. Certainly doesn't like fundamentally change what the deck's capable of. Next question. Been having good results with you meet at a tavern uh, with a heavy loaded version of the deck. I'm assuming you mean a lot of creatures. Maybe you mean expensive creatures. I don't have a lot of experience with you meet at a tavern. I know that it's Win rate in this archetype isn't great, particularly compared to its win rate in green white, which I think again makes sense because you're just like you play worse in a board stall. Like green white can afford to just like, oh, cool, we're sitting around. I have cards that lead to us sitting around. I have like defensively statted creatures and life gain stuff, and my creatures get better over time when we're sitting around. Whereas like the creatures in red green don't get better when you're sitting around. They need to be attacking to get better and. Uh, you meet in a tavern generally excels any time you can afford to sit around, which this deck just isn't built to do. Next question, is this a good Hand of Vecna deck? So my concern with Hand of Vecna is mostly that it is, you know, expensive. If you're, It's either painful or expensive, which creates exposure one way or another in a race. And I worry about the fact that, like, I think that it's easy for other people to declare that you're racing, and this is a deck that doesn't have a ton of ability to impact that race. So I'm, I'm worried about the, like, blowouts offered by Hand of Vecna. Also, we can kind of go back to the conversation about the value as a, of equipment as a function of keywords on your creatures. And we can see my creatures don't have a lot of keywords. I don't have lifelink. I don't have flying. I don't have even trample. I don't have menace very much. Like they're like most of your creatures are vanilla. And so you're not getting more than Hand of Vecna tells you you're getting. Whereas like if you can put Hand of Vecna on a white creature, you're probably picking up flying or lifelink or something like that. That makes the like extra stats, you know, if you're giving plus four plus four, and you put it on a flyer, it's like you have a 4-4 flyer. If you put it on a lifelinker, you have a 4-4 lifelinker. And like a 4-4 flyer or a 4-4 lifelinker is so much better than 4-4 vanilla. You run into the problem where it's like my big creature is even bigger and now you chump block it and I have nothing to show for it. So I would imagine that it is a below average Hand of Vecna deck. It's aggressive, which is, you know, kind of like the bare minimum because Hand of Vecna does nothing if you're not attacking. But within the scope of I'm playing an aggressive deck, it's going to be relatively bad. Which, again, also, you can look back and uh, think about my statements about Boots and Rapier in that context, where, again, adding, just giving bonus stats to my creatures that don't have keywords is not particularly appealing or powerful. Okay, I'm happy to wrap this up. Uh, like I said, pretty straightforward archetype. You, again, just as a reminder, it is powerful, but it is very narrow. You need a specific set of cards, and if you get those, you are good. I guess as a final note, let me just run through the uh, particularly desirable uncommons. There aren't very many, might as well mention them. Uh, Battlecry Goblin, Hunter's Mark, Targnar, Magic Missile, Chaos Channeler, Red Dragon, Intrepid Outlander, Burning Hands, in that order. Substantial drop, but still somewhat noteworthy uncommons. Hulking Bugbear, you see a pair of Goblins, Wandering Troopdoor, and Goblin Morningstar. Those are like playable, you know, B-tier, like nothing special, but it's fine to put them in your deck type uncommons. Think of them roughly like Circle of the Moon Druid or whatever. That wraps up another archetype. Thank you everyone for tuning in or hanging out or uh, whatever it is you're doing. I guess final request, if you're doing this on some medium that has an easy way to hit a like button or leave a review or 
you know, message a friend about something interesting you heard, you know, encourage and appreciate if you did so. And I'll be back next week with another uh, episode as determined by the patrons. Thanks again and bye everyone. For light speed.